Welcome to the Mustang UMC podcast recorded each Sunday morning during our 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. services. We invite you to join us in praise and worship during that time, and our hope is that this podcast serves as an encouragement for you and for your family in your daily life. What a gift it is. To know that uh, we'll never be more loved than we are right now. I wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I can do to let you down. So we come now to the time in our service in which we hear God's word read. And so today our scripture comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 36 through 46. This is a little longer than we had last week. But let us listen to the word of the Lord. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. Let us pray. So Lord, we do pray that your peace, that your word, that your truth, that your son would just be present here and that we would just rest in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a moment of great joy that also caused you great sadness? One of these moments in which you feel like you've been on a kind of a mountaintop, but then the valley just seems to instantly be there. Uh, For for me, it actually happened on a softball field. Now, one of the things you may not know about me is that I, for a period of time, was an incredible slow pitch intramural, not intramural, but um, I was a slow pitch softball player. And, and, And during my kind of late teens and early 20s, I played on a very good Methodist team name called the Circuit Riders. Um, and we, we had a lot of fun. I got to play with a lot of my friends, and, and Heather was a part of that team. And it was just a great, great time. There was one year I batted like 937 um, for the year, which is pretty incredible. Um, and I had figured out what to do, that, that uh, typically in the, the slow-pitch softball, the, the, one of the weaker players was in right field. And so I realized that if I could hit the ball um, to right field, then I was going to be able to get on base Um, And that's what I did throughout the season. But I wasn't a power hitter. In fact, at no point in my baseball or softball career have I ever hit the ball over the fence. That just wasn't my strength. 
Um, I was more the on-base guy, not really the power-hitting guy. Now, when we took a, a job at, well, Heather took a job at Goodrich United Methodist Church in Norman, there was a guy who had apparently heard of my reputation and wanted me to come play um, with him at softball. And so uh, I thought it was like kind of like our church team, but it was actually another church's team that he was playing on, and they just needed an extra guy. And so sure enough, I came along. Now, when I played softball, I am greatly inspired by the Chicago Cubs. And by inspired by the Chicago Cubs, I mean regularly let down repeatedly, okay? But um, I, uh, when I was, as I was growing up, then I, I loved to mimic batting stances of various people and all that sort of stuff. And my favorite Chicago Cub for a long time was Sammy Sosa. Now, I was in denial, even though it was obvious that he was using steroids, even when he was. Heads don't grow like, they're, like that normally. But um, even though it was obvious he was using steroids, I lived in denial, and I thought, you know what, maybe I could be like Sammy Sosa. And so what I did was that when I was playing, I would, I would, I would use Sammy Sosa's routine. So I'd get up there, and I'd, I'd dig in the dirt and call time, as if the slow-pitch softball was going to just wait for me, right? So I'd call time, because that's what you had to do. And then I, I'd get the bat, and I would do two of these. I'm not sure what these are, but this is what he would always do. And then I'd sort of rev up, and I'd get ready to go. And then what he would do is he'd take a half a step back so that he'd load up his power before he swung forward. Now, Sammy Sosa, whenever he'd hit a home run, he would do a little hop, all right? That that was when he knew he had gotten it. I never got to hop, all right? Because I knew I never, I never had hit one. But sure enough, I'm, I'm at this field with one guy who I kind of barely know and a bunch of people who I've never played with. And I go up there to bat. I haven't played in a little bit. You know, I go through my whole routine. The pitch comes, and sure enough, I hit it. Now, it, it starts flying, and it ends up flying over the fence. I'm so shocked that I just start running, because that's what I always do. I didn't even get to hop. And so I, I was just in awe that I had finally hit this home run, and I had this great joy. Now, in like slow-pitch softball, if you hit a bunch of home runs, you don't even have to run around the bases. You can just go to first, and they call it good. But I was going to run all the way around the bases, you know. And in my head, there was these imaginary people cheering for me that this moment had occurred in my life. And so I, I come to, to home plate, and um, a guy is like, nice hit. And I'm like, nice hit? Did you see it? Like, over, right? Somebody go get that ball. I want to put it up on the wall sort of thing. I get back to the dugout, and that's like, hey, nice job. I sit next to a guy, and he's like, oh, were you just up? Yeah, I hit a home run. Oh, cool. Good. And at that moment, I felt so good and so sad because I imagined what that moment would have been like had it been at, with the circuit riders. I mean, that if had I been playing with my team and my people, when I, when I hit that ball over the fence, my friends would have been going nuts. They wouldn't have said, oh, what just happened? Oh, nice hit. They would have met me at home plate. Keith and Garrett and Corey and these guys would have met me there. I mean, and it would have acted like I had just won the World Series. And so when I called Heather on the way home and told her, she was excited for me. I called my friends and I all told them the whole story and they were happy for me. But it wasn't the same. Right? We have these moments of great joy and great sadness. These moments in which there's excitement and there's pain. And we've probably all been there. Do you feel that? You can probably imagine a time in which that's been the case. And I imagine that that 
feeling was, that I had was just a little bit of what Jesus felt in our scripture we read. Normally we don't read all these uh, little snippets of stories together, but I think it was really important because it begins on Palm Sunday. Now we, we have Palm Sunday every year at the church. It's one of my favorite days. The, the kids wave their palm branches, they sing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's such a fun, cute exciting day. It is a day of great joy and energy. And I love it. And so kids, uh, we invite you in box one to, to draw a picture of Palm Sunday. People are calling out his name. It's a wonderful thing. But what would it look like if while people are waving palm branches and, and saying, Hosanna, that when the kids came up here to our altar, instead of just laying their branches and, and going back to the seat, they just started weeping like Jesus did. It's a different thing. I realize that for all these years I've missed some of Palm Sunday because I've been so focused on Hosanna that I missed that Jesus wept. It says, as he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And so it begs the question for us, why is Jesus weeping? Why is it that this moment of what should be great joy, these people calling out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's riding into town, this triumphal entry. For Jesus, if you read the Gospels, going to Jerusalem is a major theme. That when he says, and he began his turn toward Jerusalem, that the end is near and the moment of victory is coming but yet here he is in this pivotal moment, people praising him, and he's weeping. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, why is it? Now, there are some clues, I think, that Scripture give us as to why he is weeping. One of those is the Pharisees. And so in verse 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Have you ever had one of those people that everything is going well, and somebody's like, well, Yeah, but what about this? You're like, guys, come on, things are good, and there's this person. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees, in the midst of a crowd of people who were getting it, they completely missed the point. So I think one of the reasons why he was weeping is that the Pharisees, these religious leaders, the people who were probably a lot like Jesus in the fact that they studied God's words, that they were considered rabbis, completely missed the point. I think he was also weeping because of Jerusalem and what it stood for. That there is the, in the center of Jerusalem is a temple that represented the place that God would reside. This is the holiest of ground. And this is a place that should be the most representative of God on the earth. And it hadn't been that. I think he was also weeping about what would happen in the future. That in the future, in 70 AD, this temple would be destroyed. And he prophesied about that exact thing that happened. And all that's left is the western wailing wall. And he was the first person to weep at that wall. And so I think the combination of all of these things are why Jesus was weeping. And so kids in box two, I invite you to draw a picture of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as he walked into the city. I think it is important for us to look at these Pharisees. Because they really were the people that didn't get it. Now, I often look down on the Pharisees. I feel like they should know better. 
that, that, that they were around Jesus, they knew the law, they knew the prophecies, but they missed the point. And how could they do that? But as I, I really got into this text and as I've studied this, what I realized is, is that this is my new definition of Pharisee, is a Pharisee is anyone who looks down on other people because of faith. And what I realized is that when I look down on the Pharisees, I am no better than them. And anytime, in fact, I look down on anybody because of my faith or their faith, because I think, ooh, I'm better than them, or I can't believe they would think that way, or how can somebody believe that way? When I look down on them, then I am rising myself up and I am becoming a Pharisee. You know, there's a, a great parable that Jesus gives where, where there's a, a Pharisee and a publican, kind of a, a normal person. And the Pharisee, when he comes up to the altar to pray, he, he prays to God and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like that person. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, thank you I'm not like that person who thinks that way, who believes that. How could they? While the publican, the, the regular guy, he beat his chest and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And unfortunately, I'm too often the guy that says, thank you, God, I'm not like him. Then I am the one who says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so here they were missing the point of faith, of God, of the good news. So it forces us to continue to ask the question, why is Jesus weeping? And what is he weeping about? And I think that Jesus weeps when we miss the point as a church, when we aren't doing what God asks us to do, what is most important. And earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in, in chapter 11, we, we get some harsh words that Jesus says to the, the Pharisees, those people who believe they're better than somebody else because of their faith. And so in Luke 11, he says, what sorrow awaits you? And he gives some different examples. In one piece of scripture, he says, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Yesterday, Heather and I, when we were driving around, we, we noticed somebody's yard, not in our neighborhood, it was in another city, somebody's yard who their front yard looked good, but when, you, when they, they were missing some slats in their backyard, and you could tell their backyard was a mess. Right? Is, is that the way it's been sometimes? We, we want to be really good on the outside. We want people to think well of us, but where people can't see, we hide it. The outside looks good, but on the inside, there's these brokenness and this dirtiness and these scars. You know, one of the things I've even learned about myself, and maybe it's like some of you as well, like um, I have a desire to be, to be seen as successful. I, I, and I really, I want to be successful, but my desire is not just to be successful, but it's to be seen as successful. The perception of success matters more than actual success in and of itself. And so it's hard for us as people who, who try to make things look good on the outside when we're struggling on the inside. And that's been the Pharisees. So careful to clean the outside of the dish what people might see. But our backyard is a mess. The Pharisees also, they were, were so focused on their required rituals, more so than they were on loving justice. Jesus says these words, You are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. 
And I imagine here the, the, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, they were doing what Jesus said to do. Tithing is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. We should be generous. We should give. This is what God calls us to do. But they would get their herbs and they would, they would measure out a tenth of a little bit of an herb to make sure, okay, I want to make sure I give exactly the right amount of God amount to God. And while they were measuring it out and cutting it off, meanwhile, their neighbor is crying out. But they're so focused on this that their eyes are not up to hear the cries of the neighbor. Yes, we should give, and that's important, but we ignore the important things of justice and the love of God. And how easy is it for us to live our lives and to be focused on doing all these things for God that we miss our neighbors who are crying for someone to love them. And I think especially it's a danger for those of us who've been in church for a long time. And for me, that's been my whole life. And I know for some of you, that's been the way it is for you as well. And so it's easy to kind of check off all the church boxes we know we're supposed to do. So I came to church this morning, check. I went to Sunday school, check. I did my upper room daily devotion, check. I wrote a check, check, I guess, right? And sometimes we can say, well, I did my duty. I wrote a check. I signed my name. I feel good about myself. And Jesus says, that's not enough. Just because you wrote a check doesn't mean you've done what God wants you to do today. Because that neighbor you just walked by, that person who's crying out needs your ears. He goes on to say, you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burdens. You remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. And so for those of us who are church leaders, I think this is a particularly hard word, that, that we have to enter the kingdom. We can't just do all the right things. It's about being in the presence of God. It's about ushering ourselves in there so that we can help other people to experience that as well. And so one of the questions I've been asking all week is what would Jesus weep over today? What are the things that Jesus would just weep about today? What would he cry over? And so kids in box three, I invite you to answer this question. What do you think something that Jesus would weep over today? I do think one thing that Jesus would weep over is the state of the big C church. That the church as a whole hasn't been the witness that we are called to be. There was a study done, and it was done back in 2007. It's hard for me to realize it's been that long. So it's 14 years old. They asked 16 to 29-year-olds. All right, so that would be, what, 30 to 40-something-year-olds now. What their thoughts about Christians were. 87% of those young adults said Christians are judgmental. 85% Christians are hypocritical. 78% say Christians are old-fashioned. 75% say Christians are too involved in politics. And I can't imagine those numbers have gone down. And so all the, the perception of the church and even the reality of the church, I think, is something that Jesus would weep over, that people do not see the church as a place to belong, but instead a place for people to push them away. And so how do we become a people? I think Jesus would weep that we are known more for what we are against than who and what we are for. And we have a 
lot of work to help people know that God embraces them and loves them. I think Jesus would weep over the pain that Christians and the church have caused. Now, I heard one time somebody say, there is no perfect church, and if there was a perfect church, it became imperfect the moment you and I walked in. I don't expect the church to be perfect. I know that that's not a reality. But I do know that when the church hurts people, it deeply wounds them. And there are some people who will not come back into a church because of the pain they've experienced from a pastor, from a teacher, from just somebody who sits in the pews for something that was said or done. And and if you are in this room or you're watching online and the church has hurt you, I just want to say I'm sorry. Again, I said the church isn't perfect. We don't expect it to be. But I just want you to know that your pain matters to God and that he weeps over the pain that you experience. And it's not okay. I can't promise that we're going to be a perfect church, but we're going to do our best to walk with people and to take this journey together. Because I think that Jesus weeps not only when we experience pain, but also when we give pain. When I was in seminary, I had um, a professor by the name of Dr. Callis. Now, Dr. Callis had to have been one of the top five preachers of all time. I don't know about you, but I've been watching the Olympics, um, and I've really enjoyed the Olympics, and it's kind of crazy um, how we, you know, like, for, you know, gold, silver, bronze, that's what it's all about. And imagine, like, we were watching the other day, and there was that, like, 15-year-old swimmer um, who, who came in fourth place. And I remember being, like, so disappointed she didn't get up in the medal stand. And it's like, you're the fourth best person in the world at something at 15, right? Like, amazing. How cool would it be to be the fourth best person at anything? That's no disappointment. If I was the fourth best preacher in the world, you all would be excited, right? Fourth best at anything, all right? Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Well, Dr. Callis was, again, to me, one of the best of all time. And he had all the gifts of a preacher. He, 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 was, a, he, he was a big guy. And he had that deep voice that sometimes you felt like God was speaking directly to you through him. He was funny. He was clever. He had a memory. He could, he could do everything without notes. It was just an incredible. He had all the gifts of a preacher. And I remember sitting there one uh, chapel service and and as I was watching him and as I was just so immersed in the sermon, he, he preached a sermon from the first person perspective of one of the people who died with Jesus. And it was one of those sermons in which all of us were just leaning in the whole time. It was still and quiet. And I'll never forget what he said. From the person of one of the prisoners who died with Jesus, he said, and when I raped that woman, you wept for her. And you wept for me too. This is who God is. He weeps for the wounded and the woundee. He weeps for those who are hurting and those who cause the hurt. This is part of, I think, why Jesus is weeping. Is that he realizes that the temple, the Israelites, the people who should have gotten it the most, are missing the point. And he weeps not just for those who are hurting, like we talked about last week with Mary and Martha, but he also weeps for those who are causing the pain. And what our scripture shows us is that Jesus weeps, but that weeping, that pain, that anguish causes him into action and into righteous indignation. And so he turns over the tables. I mean, can you imagine? I always thought of as a pastor, like, what it would be like if I turned over 
this table. I think one of you would tackle me. Would think he's lost it. All right? I hope that the candles don't start burning up the sanctuary, right? All these sort of stuff. There's communion today. Oh, no. But here Jesus turns over the temples because what has happened is that people had used the temple sacrifices as a way to take advantage of people who were in need. And so they would have to come and they'd have to get a dove without blemish or a, ping, or a pigeon without blemish or whatever it was. And so the, the people who didn't have a lot of material resources would come and they would have to pay the price of the temple people. And they'd, they'd, they'd raise the prices like what happens when you go to a movie theater. Now, if you haven't been to a movie theater, they still exist, all right? Um, in a long time. But, but uh, you can watch movies on these huge screens instead of on your little one that you have at your house, all right? But they raise the price of popcorn, right? $8 for some popcorn. How many things of Walmart popcorn can you get for eight bucks, right? But that's what it would be like at the temple is they would raise the price because these people had to pay it and they had to get it and they would take advantage of them. And so Jesus turns over the tables and he said, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You've missed the point. It's not about raising money. It's about people connecting with God. And so kids in box four, I invite you to draw a picture of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. And I think what happens is, is that it's so easy for us to be like Pharisees, to miss the point and to miss the mark. We've been so busy trying to get our lives to look right on the outside of trying to always be strong. Uh, there was an old song by a group called Casting Crown, Stained Glass Masquerade, um, that, that we always got to feel like we've got to get our things put together that we're missing the need that we have for Jesus. It's easy for us to have a nice front lawn and a messy backyard. And so faith is not about privileging the powerful, but it's about protecting the poor. Now, when I say poor, I do mean materially poor. I mean those who, who don't have the same opportunities, but I think God reminds us that we are all called to be poor. Because to be poor means to be needy, and that's who we are. That's who we are called to be. That's what it means to enter into a house of prayer, is to remind ourselves that we need God, and that we are desperate for Him, that we are dependent on Him. And so often we can make it about all the things that we think we need to do, all the sacrifices, all the religious rituals that we need, and what Jesus wants more than anything else is for us to just come and be in His presence and to need and depend him. And so, so often we think, God, take care of all these other people. I got this. Don't worry about me, God. I'm going to do all the right things that I can, and, and, and I'm not able to, but that's what I think. God, you go be with other people, but what he wants for a church, a temple, for the people of God is to be a house of prayer where people need him. In Psalm 51, which is, the psalm that David wrote as he made his confession of sin, he writes these words. For you do, not, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. This is the one who said, I require burnt offerings. This is part of our law. They, they are important, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is not the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God wants you. 
open-handed, open-hearted, just as you are. And when we are so focused on what we can do for God instead of our need of God, when we're so focused in trying to show the right things without really being with God, Jesus weeps. You see, I believe that desperation, not perspiration, is the key to following Jesus. Desperation. Lord, save us. I mean, that's part of the remarkable thing of the Palm Sunday story. Hosanna means Lord, save us, is that they were saying the exact right prayer. We need you. This is all we can do. We're going to take our coats, we're going to lay them before you. We're going to take what we have, and we're going to make a, a place for you. We're going to grab the palm branches off the trees. We weren't prepared for the parade, but we're going to make it one anyways because we are so desperate in need of you. Can that be us? People who are desperate for the love, the mercy, and the goodness of God. Now, sometimes as I, as I prepare my sermon, there's stuff that bothers me. And so I was bothered th- throughout this sermon by this line that Jesus said, right after he wept for the city, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And I began to wonder, what, is, what are the things that make for peace? Now, the biblical idea of peace, I know, is not just sort of this absence of conflict, but this presence of wholeness, of goodness that there's a fullness to life. So what, is, what are the things that make for peace? And so for, as I was thinking about that and reflecting on it, I thought, it's the Prince of Peace. What are the things that make for peace that you didn't hold on to? It's Jesus. They had all the knowledge, they had all the scriptures, but they missed Jesus. And the same way it can be true for us. You can come to church Sunday after Sunday. You can read your Bible. You can be the best at Bible trivia. When that category comes up in jeopardy, you can get them all and feel really good about yourself and not know Jesus. Or you can come today and say, Lord, I need you. I want you. I need more. I mentioned last week there's a song by Rich Mullins and And that line has just been sticking with me all week. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? It's easy to look out into a world and think they need the peace of God. It's easy to, to see real quickly the need of peace, of wholeness breaking through into the darkness, of light shining in in the crevices of our world. Jesus weeps when the church isn't who we're supposed to be, but I believe that we can be the church that we're supposed to be for our neighbors. I believe you can be the people that God has asked us to be and calls us to be. And so as we prepare to receive communion today, I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer so that we can breathe in the peace of God and that we can confess that we need him. So let us pray. So, Lord Jesus, we come to you today, and we're sorry, Lord, for the things we've made it when it's all about you. It's so easy for us to get caught up on on making things look good. It's so easy for us to get caught up on our religious checklist to do, to do, to do, that we miss out on you and the deep things you're calling us to.
Lord, forgive us when we do not love our neighbors as ourselves, when we do not even hear the cry of the needy because we've turned up our own music so loud. May we receive your grace. May we remind ourselves that we are not called to see ourselves as better than anyone, but instead to humbly seek you and to know that we are poor in spirit. We are needy. We are desperate. May we receive that and know that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we prepare to receive communion, and if you're at home, uh, we just invite you to get the closest thing you can in order to, to join with us. I, I want to share a story with you. I was talking uh, some time ago with a, a friend of mine, and he was struggling with some things, and um, I decided I would just be mean and just tell him what I thought. Sometimes I like to sort of be nice for a long, long time, but I thought, this friend, he can take it. And I said, look, you're not going to be successful. What you are hoping to do, you're not going to be able to do because you're not desperate enough. You think it would be nice to change your behavior, but you are so caught in it that the only way that you could possibly change is to be desperate enough to surrender all. And you're not there yet. So if you go down this pathway, this is what's going to happen. You will get sick. You may die young. I don't know. But there's another pathway. But you've got to be desperate. You've got to want it. You've got to need it. And you've got to realize you can't do it yourself. And so I wonder... Is he going to be desperate enough? And I wonder the same for you. Is the pathway you're going, is it, you're like, I know I need to change, but it's, it's not too bad yet. It'll be okay. Or are you going to be hungry and desperate to receive God's grace? And so my hope for each and every one of us is that we are hungry and desperate. That's one reason why I love communion. It is this act, it's this tangible act to remind us that we are desperately in need of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Mustang UMC podcast. Once again, our services are at 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. every Sunday morning, and we would love to see you there. For more information about the Mustang United Methodist Church, please visit us at mustangumc.org or email us at office at mustangumc.org. That is office at mustangumc.org. We hope you enjoyed.